can't tell you how many times I've disconnected from my wife. I'm like, oh, hey, I got to run, got an emergency. You know, love you, bye, click. Yep. Yeah, that love you, bye is um, pretty important because you just never know if those are the last words you'll hear or um, if you get to see them again. What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. Today, my guest is Angela Harrell. She is the president and CEO of the 100 Club of Arizona, a fantastic 501c3 that does a tremendous amount of work for public safety. And we talk about her journey from you know farm girl in Minnesota uh, all the way up to her position as CEO and some of the events that have transpired in her life that have shaped the direction in which she's traveled. Uh, tears were shed and um, hugs were exchanged. It was a very tender uh, podcast, very informative. And uh, I will just say the work that they're doing at the Under Club uh, is fantastic and is about taking care of our brothers and sisters who are behind the badge. And that is an important mission. Now, that's all I got to say about that. I want you guys to tune in and listen and enjoy. And uh, here we go. Angela, thank you so much for taking the time and sitting down with me. I know you are a busy person and I want to talk about the work that you're doing at the hundred club. I want to talk about, um, who you are as a person. And, and so let's start with, uh, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Who is Angela Harrell and how did you get, <laughs> where'd you come from? How'd you end up in Phoenix? And oh my gosh. Well, if you do a winter or two in Minnesota, you're going to Phoenix for sure. You're like, I don't want to ever shovel again. I don't want to plug in my car so that it'll start the next day. People look at me and say, is that really a thing? But it is. Anyway, so yeah. I, so growing up in Minnesota was hard. I'm yeah. Really, that's what I'm yeah. hearing. What you're On a farm, it was cold. It was a lot of work. Um, I come from a huge family. I'm the oldest of six kids. Um, same parents. I just, we nothing else to do when it's really cold. <laughs> so we a lot of us have September birthdays <laughs> anyway, nonetheless. But um you know, I just knew I wanted to go somewhere and do something besides stay there, even though I love everything about Minnesota and I love being from there and going back to visit, but I just knew there was so much more out there for me to do. And I also grew up again, working on a farm and you only have to pressure wash pig feces into a 90 degree corner one time to know that this is not your <laughs> destiny, right? You're like, I'm out of here. I'm never going to do this again. It's never coming out of my Not nose. Minnesota and not a farmer. Yeah. Right? Now, sorry. I mean, I feel, you know, like I've got a healthy level of respect for it and I think it's wonderful and I appreciate our farmers more than anything. But, um, as my dad is still farming himself and my brother as well, but, um, yeah, I just needed to get out, which, led me to getting ready to go to college. And it's like, okay, where do you go? And I looked kind of in that five state region because you don't want to go too far, but yet you don't want to be at home. So you got to find that delicate balance. And I went to South Dakota State University for a year, had this great SDSU sweatshirt and everybody's like, SDSU, I love San Diego. <laughs> and I'm like, no, South the Dakota, other SDSU. not as sexy, weather's not very good. <laughs> anyway, I was there for a year and just continued to explore my options. And I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do the things that I wanted to do there. So I what, started continuing to look on. Well, what were you, what were you hoping to study? I wanted to do something along the line of uh, either pre-law or criminology. Um, and I was researching programs and the only one outside of that region was ASU. They had this great justice studies based program here. It wasn't criminal justice. It was a little more broader, um, in preparation for other environments. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to Arizona and here I landed. 
and it was wonderful. So. Yeah. The first time I, I remember in, you know, at the end of my high school career, hearing people talk about the colleges they were going to, I, I went to the college of misfit children, right. but <laughs> hard knocks is the other one. Yeah. yeah. That was my first choice. But the, uh, but I remember hearing people talk about going to Arizona and I had no experience with Arizona and, and thought, why why would you go to the desert? That sounds horrible. Not right. realizing actually how much there is to do in the greater Phoenix area. Oh yeah. It's not just brown. People think it's only brown and dry and that's not the case. Right. I mean, we have haboobs, whatever those yeah, are. Right? Yeah. Right. That's exciting. <laughs> that's exciting. We have weather. <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about. There's so, a cloud out there today. I think I saw one. So, yeah. <laughs> right. And Hey, I will tell you, you do not have to shovel sunshine, right? And there's yeah, something beautiful. really attractive about that. Yeah. I grew up in the Northwest where, and I lived in Toronto for a number of years. So I, I'm familiar with cold and wet and miserable. Well, uh, and I often reference the Northwest because yeah. if you're there for a few days, I mean, we love it when it rains here. Everybody loves yeah. the rain. Why? Because it only happens very occasionally. And up in the Northwest or Minnesota, wherever it is, you get three or four gloomy days in a row and it starts to affect your attitude. And you're like, Oh, I can't go outside. I'm not done. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing that. I don't want to work out. I don't want to do anything. Yeah. I just yeah. want to crater and you can't crater. You need yeah. to just keep moving. Yeah. I think, you know, it's funny as, as a child growing up in the Northwest, it was easy to, um, go to school and play and hang out and you had no responsibilities. But I vividly remember my mom walking out to the car in her snow boots with her long coat on, her dress underneath and her heels in her hand and then a boiling tea kettle in the other hand because she had to melt the freezing rain out of the door locks to get oh. the key in the door. Like just that kind of hassle. And I look back on that and reflect and go, ooh, yeah, being an adult in that kind of environment is a whole other level of nonsense that you have to deal with mm -hmm. just to get to work. Right. Like, that's well, and then the work snow. piece. Think yeah. about the work piece. Mm -hmm. Imagine being a firefighter or a law enforcement officer in the Northwest or in, you know, a freezing area where you have to get out of your car because it's your job to go confront or work with a person in a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's freezing rain, it's ice, it's snow, and it's miserable. Yeah. We are lucky. We shouldn't be telling people how lucky we are here because <laughs> we already have enough people moving here. Right. So let's talk about how hot it is. Okay. Because it's freaking miserable it's uh, all the way through like October. It's hot, hot. You shouldn't come here because it's so hot. It is. It's, it's <laughs> disgusting. And we travel with jackets because it's cold inside and then it's hot outside. And, you know, we could just make things up like you're tires melt to the asphalt if you leave them parked too long yeah i don't know what? i have melted a few things in my car though <laughs> that i've left in there a little too long so. <laughs> i heard i the joke is is that you know people come in kind of quickly or always running late that they're going to melt the front end of their car upon re-entry and i think about that here in phoenix so yeah you anyway. know exactly yeah. so okay so we're off track you were yeah. talking about <laughs> law enforcement though you went in you were studying law and criminology and so what took you down that path though? Cause growing up on a farm, I, I think you, you know, I don't know what, I, I find it fascinating how people go in certain directions. Was there, is there a moment in time where you were thinking like, I want to be an officer or something like that, law enforcement officer? I just kind of always wanted to serve. I was, I didn't really want to go into the military. I mean, I think that that's a, an incredible opportunity for a lot of people as you have that experience as well. And I just felt like that was a little too, too extreme for me, but I wanted to do something where I could serve and where I could give back, where I could make a difference. And that's when I decided, um, I also wanted to see the world. 
Mm. That was a big piece because mm-hmm. I had basically never left the farm. I mean, I, we'd take little trips, you know, an hour to the east or an hour to the west, but that was it. Like never really left the state. And I grew up in this very small Anglo-Saxon environment. And I thought there's got to be another world out there and I want to find it. Yeah. So when I came to Arizona, I thought, you know, I'm going to do this justice studies program. And it led me to getting a pretty incredible internship with the U.S. Department of State uh, Bureau of Diplomatic Security Service, which of all places, I mean, I went from tiny little small town, never have left to going to school briefly in South Dakota and then here and then ultimately working in this global environment. Right. The Foreign Service, which is something that most people haven't heard of. When I say Department of State, they're like, oh, what state? I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> oh, well, actually, <laughs> it's the U.S. Department of State. It's mm. not tied to one state. And we have uh, diplomatic missions overseas and then obviously have a... So give me give me a little bit of an example of what that would look like. So what does, sure. what does that work look like? So a lot of people... Obviously, people know Secret Service, right? The mm-hmm. Secret Service, they protect the president, and then they protect uh, world leaders um, from different respective countries. The prime minister rather than the president of the country, that is the role. It's kind of interchangeable. And But diplomatic security, basically, they do executive protection similar to Secret Service. They oftentimes will work hand-in-hand with the Secret Service, but they do protection for the foreign minister level or the secretary of state. So I had the honor and privilege to work with um, Secretary of State Albright, um, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, and um, made some changes after that and settled in Arizona. But um, in that realm, you're doing executive protection, Okay, but then you also overseas, you are doing mission security and facility protection at different embassies or consulates around the world. And then there's a big investigation piece, too. So you're doing investigations into visa, passport fraud, um, any kind of international involvement in crime. So you work a lot with the FBI and things on that level. So it's, it's a very dynamic uh, field and again, in a global environment. But the beauty, I bring it back to kind of like law enforcement or fire specifically. I mean, you start, you're doing one thing, right? You might be an EMT or you're riding the back seat or whatever the case is. And then all of a sudden you're the engineer. You have a whole new job and responsibility. And then you might end up, you know, doing a 40 hour work week later, which is like, hang on, what, what happened? You know, we're doing different things in our lives. So lots of different areas that you can go into in that foreign service field, um, just like you could in other um careers here locally, for example. Yeah. That's fascinating to me. And it makes sense that there would be a lot of different pathways to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about the, um, the idea of doing the, the personal protection component of that. Was that more of like a, like I, I obviously it's like, you know, stand behind me. And yeah. Charlie's angels. No, not <laughs> okay, really, yeah, not say, really. People are like, <laughs> yeah. And, and to be honest, like you don't, you're not the most intimidating you know person when, when you meet you. And so, Mm, that's the secret, right? Is that mm, the secret is to be secret. this, the, the gray man, so to speak, mm-hmm. the unassumed. Yeah. Uh, like what's the, what's the, um, white girl from Minnesota doing speaking Spanish. Mm, yeah. You that? threw me off a little bit when you started yeah. throwing down. So there's a little, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we had a little, we did not record. Unassuming this. A, is good. Yeah. This was prior to prior some, to hitting the yeah. red button. Yeah. <laughs> Which is good. <laughs> okay. Well, that's right. cool. So that's, so that's interesting to me. So that dignitary protection piece of it fascinates me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I imagine a lot of that is site security and doing recon and, and, and understanding the big picture of what you're walking into preparatory to arrival, like that type of stuff. Yes, all of that. And then there's the intelligence piece. There's, like I said, it's it's very, very dynamic in the sense that you can, you can sign up to be part of, you know, like the mobile security division, the MSD program, which is similar to, say, like a SWAT type mm-hmm. environment in a local police department, but kind of on steroids, okay? They're, they are the extreme um, that is going to help do also protection in a high threat, high risk environment. Imagine Iraq, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So Afghanistan how, recently. So let me ask you about the, the physical component of this. So obviously, pr- like, I, I look at it kind of allied to law enforcement, this idea that you are going to be uh, physically putting yourself between uh a nefarious actor and your, your, what do you call that person that you're protecting your, your client or your, the protectee, your dignitary, the VIP. Yeah. yeah, Call them whatever you want. (laughs) I I was, there's gotta be some slick name (laughs) that they call them, right? I don't know. Uh, Code names, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 You've got the Eagles in the nest. Exactly. (laughs) The Eagle has landed. Everyone knows that one. So, so what is the physicality of that job? Like how much physical preparation do you do? Do you got to be a jujitsu black belt? Like what type of preparation do you do? I wish I was a badass like that, but I'm not. So you have to go to an academy, of course, Mm -hmm. and all of, or the majority of our diplomatic security special agents, they all go to the national foreign affairs. Well, they actually... Let me start over. They're going to go to Fletzy, which is the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Georgia. Okay. You're going to do some time there and you're going to do kind of like a baseline. And then you move on to your actual respective academy, which their um, diplomatic security has theirs up in Virginia. And they're going to do some follow-on training there, if you can imagine. So it's like your general and then the more advanced Anyway, then you start working, you do your thing. And then if you end up getting pushed overseas to different places, then you're going to come back and go to what they call RSO school, which is regional security officer school or training program. And yeah, I did did all of those things. You're getting tuned up on the local culture, the local threats, the local issues. That's in addition to the RSO school. You have, uh, you'll go to the National Foreign Affairs Training um, Center in Virginia as well. And that's where you learn culture or language. Like that's where I learned Spanish. So culture, language, um, all of those parts and pieces to get you prepared to go wherever your respective more long-term assignment is. So for example, I had the opportunity to go to Santiago, Chile. I was in Mexico. Uh, for some time, did uh, a short, a bit, to- a bit of time in um, Haiti, which was very, very interesting, and but managed. Those are the longer assignments, but ultimately, you know, forty-five countries. Yeah, that's, that's a, really that's neat. A lot of travel. What, what would you tell a young person who's who's like now that you've piqued their interest, right? Oh, all the young, all the young it. kids listening to this. Do it <laughs> in a heartbeat. Yeah, a poor man's jet set. I mean, you're going to get out there. You're going to make yourself a better person. You're going to have the opportunity to be exposed to this international environment and other cultures. And I, I just think it's so good for people to travel and to see how other people live. Mm. Like I said, from a farm to this global platform is a big deal. And, you know, we are coming out of this, thankfully, and I hope it's done, but I know it's not. Um, a lot of negative rhetoric that surrounds law enforcement mm. and everyone wants to defund police and uh, firefighters are pretty lucky. They're pretty safe, which is good. For Everybody now. loves firefighters. For now. I like, know, I know. That? But um, they want to, <laughs> they want to defund police. And when they do that, think about this. It's taking away 911. All right. You don't have a police officer or firefighter is going to respond to your most immediate need, probably the worst day of your life. And 
I recommend people travel to places where 911 doesn't exist and tell me how comfortable you are. Uh. And that'll help you appreciate where you're from and the resources that are available to you and the extra penny or two here that goes to support our public safety personnel that support us every day. Yeah. I, I can tell you one time I was, uh, I showed up on scene of, a, of an incident uh, off duty and I, it was in California. Actually, I called 911 and I got a busy signal. Oh my gosh. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> what do I do now? Right. Yeah. So I went to work and I gave my wife the phone and I said, Hey, here, try to call these people. She had to call back five times to get through. Um, now just that alone, uh, was caused us uh, a lot of uh, concern, if you will. Right. Absolutely. Uh, micro panic. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't imagine if it had affected my family and I was trying to call for help or if no access to help was available to me, yes. that would freak me out. And, and just you talking about that makes me have a cold sweat. I know, um, right? I mean, it. and that's the thing. And so when people, you know, get on their soapbox and they talk about this, I just, I just, ugh, I want to ship them all out for yeah. a couple of weeks for, at a for time. Remedial training. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. They just need some more exposure. I feel yeah. like just because we need to appreciate the resources we have. Yeah. Well, not to get too deep in that rabbit hole, but when you think about what law enforcement does for us and, and public safety as a, as a whole, there's so much that we take for granted because most of us never have to access it. Mm -hmm. And we just see the sound bites and the small clips and the, the short form mm -hmm. explanation for what's happening on television, right. right? And we don't really understand the backstory. And I'm not trying to defend any individual action here, but understanding that there's a lot of context mm -hmm. that is left out. Absolutely. You right? only get one viewpoint. Yeah. And if you think of the world in the 360, I mean, you literally get one angle, you get one camera angle, you get yeah. one sound bite. Yep. You, and like, like us, this podcast today, right? right. I don't know how long you're going to record. But you're going to you hear could, our perspective. You <laughs> could, yeah, you could actually <laughs> cut out all the good stuff I say and only, you know, only do the bad stuff, but you're not going to do that. And otherwise I wouldn't be sitting here. Otherwise. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for the trust. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's just, anyway, again, the rabbit hole. Yeah. Yep. Well, on. that's a, it's important that um, people are messy. And situations are messy. It's complicated, man. Mm -hmm. And so when we try to distill it down to this one thing was good, this one thing was bad, it's not that simple. No. And we all have to really uh, step back a little bit and, and really try to gather the the bigger, the broader vision, the broader understanding of what's taking place in our community and, and be 100%. mindful of it. Yeah. And, 100%. Yeah. So... So that, so first of all, I want to say really cool that you had the opportunity to go do that. And, you know, at some point you landed in Phoenix, right, right. after traveling around. <laughs> and, um, and I want to talk to you about, um, you know, how you ended up in the 100 Club. And I think there's a path there and, and that took you down this path. And part of that path was Bruce Harrell. Yes. And, yes, sir. Um, Who you have you knew? Yeah. So Bruce and I worked together in Sun City West. Now we were not on the same truck. He was a firefighter. Uh -huh. um, he was on a different shift, and so we kind of saw each other in passing. And and what a all I know from Bruce is a really great guy. I don't have any great stories to tell, except that <laughs> <laughs> except one day he came in. And he's like, I'm gonna go be a flight medic, and everyone and we're all like, What? You have the okay. <laughs> For those who don't know, once you are a firefighter, you have won the lottery. That uh -huh. is the dream job. It is. And then he comes in and starts talking about going to PD. I'm going to go to DPS, Department of Public Safety, and I'm going to fly in a helicopter and be a medic. And we're like, what is wrong with you, son? Right. You are out of your mind. Yeah. So you were married to him at that time. Basically, So yeah. tell me more about that. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, that was interesting. So you say, you know, being a firefighter is like, it's the cream of the crop. I mean, there's no question. There's the sound bite. You just said it. Yeah, cream of the crop. (laughs) But, and again, that is what people strive for. That's what he strived for. You know, I mean, tested and tested and tested. It's a competitive, it's competitive job to get, right? So that's why everyone's like, hey, you're in. Yeah. Once you've landed, you're, you've got the job. You're supposed to love it and stay there and keep doing it. Right. Well, apparently he liked to collect uniforms. That's really the short story. So he didn't have the officer uniform, so he went and got it. And then he's like, ooh, the flight suit, that's cool too. So then he got the flight suit, you know, and it just kept adding to the um, the uniform wardrobe, <laughs> so to speak. And But I always say that, you know, he had every seven-year-old boy's dream job. I mean, he really did. I mean, you get to jump out of helicopters, you get to, you know work to make sure that you protect people, help them with their medical situations that they may have, and then keep the bad guys away. Yeah. Does it get any better? It's like a Batman and Robin kind of thing, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, you know, he, um, honestly, I, I, uh, had a lot of pride in him going and doing that because to me it was about having an objective, a personal objective, and chasing that dream. And and anybody who is willing to put themselves out there and and say, hey, this is what I want to do with my life, mm-hmm. I have nothing but but admiration for that because to me, uh, we can sometimes you get locked into a path and we follow that path to our demise to a de- for to a degree, right? We just stick know- we stick to it no matter what and mm-hmm. we aren't willing to pivot or try something new right. even if it's not our dream. Yeah, right? and and the individual often doesn't know that they've overstayed their welcome. Mm. I just always find that fascinating. It's like you can't stay in one role too long because it could be a disservice. And if you are that grumpy, jaded, you know, pessimist, whatever, and you're just done with all of it, maybe it's time to either get a hobby, okay, (laughs) or not, I don't know, you could go all different directions with this, but he loved everything that he was doing, every ounce of it. He loved every department he worked for. It was always the best department. (laughs) And he worked at quite a few here in Arizona. And like I said, you said, when did you meet him? And I met him actually after uh, he was already an officer medic with DPS. However, we were set up on a blind date. Okay. And um, this woman that we knew, my, anyway, long story, this woman that we knew, she's like, oh, you've got to meet him. He's wonderful. He's a firefighter. I was like, oh, they don't, that doesn't even pay any money. (laughs) Like where I'm from, everybody's a volunteer. So I thought, how can you be a firefighter? So it wasn't like, oh, you've got to make a lot of money. It was just like, you just have to earn an income. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's not a real job. No, yeah. And then he's like, no, I actually, yeah, no, I get paid. I do this full time. I go, you're kidding me. Again, this is like naive farm girl. So anyway, um, we were introduced, we hit it off. And at the time I was living in Chicago and he was here. And I had flown back and we started dating and everything was good, even though it was long distance. Everything was great. And then I got a call to uh, my first overseas uh, assignment, which was in Santiago, Chile. And I go, so, yeah, this was fun. Yeah. So you were talking earlier about how, you know, you had met your wife in one area and then you were quickly deployed to move to another area. And well, luckily Bruce was like, well, I'm good with that. And I go, what do you mean you're good? Stay in touch. Yeah, stay in touch. Actually, no, he's like, oh, well, maybe I will. um, Well, let's just keep doing this. So we kept doing it for another few months. And then he proposed. And then we quickly got married before we went overseas so that he could have diplomatic immunity when we traveled. Oh, that's a, I know, <laughs> that's I a know, loophole. <laughs> right. And uh, he was able to take a leave of absence from DPS 
and he was able to come and work on his thesis and join me. And he worked with the bomberos, the firefighters down in Chile in his spare time and also trained with the Marine Security Guard Detachment just to keep himself busy while he was going back to school during this time off where he was the trailing spouse. Nobody likes that term, um, especially if you're the guy. Okay. Yeah, it's, an but, un, it's kind of uh, unusual roles, right? right? A, a oh, non-traditional. As an example, yeah. um, he got invited to the spouse's tea. <laughs> He and another spouse that was a male who was former Marine, and they looked at each other. They go, "Yeah, right." We'll be at the the bar having some brewskis. Exactly, literally. Oh my gosh. Anyway, but he really made the most of his time, and he was gone. He he was there with me for about fifteen months, which was wonderful. I'm just so grateful to DPS for allowing him the opportunity. So he did like a leave of absence. Exactly. Which worked out pretty cool. And then uh, when that was up, my next assignment was in uh, Mexico. So it was a lot closer. And that was the goal is to just get closer because Arizona, Mexico. And that's what we did. We just kind of did the commuting thing, which worked out great as a newly married couple with no kids. And then you have a child. Mm, okay. changes everything oh my gosh i mean it really slows you down and then <laughs> uh, and then you have another child Whew, it just you hit the brakes it's like oh yeah. my gosh but he yeah. was amazing he's mr mom mr mom all day every day because again firefighters or you know those that work on rescue helicopters only work maybe seven to ten days a month mm. Where was he based out of? So he started, when I met him, he was based here out of Phoenix, but he also did an assignment in Tucson and then also up north. His um, last assignment was in Flagstaff, even though we lived here in the valley, in the East Valley. So, yeah. So so at that point, are you, so you have two kiddos. Mm-hmm. Are you still, are you still working for the state department? So I, t- I ended up taking a leave of absence and then I came back here and real close to the end of my leave of absence, they're like, you know, what do you want to do? And... Um, Bruce was still working in his role as a trooper medic, um, on the rescue helicopter and doing that commute every day. So I had picked up a employment out East running the fire and security program for the general motors desert proving ground, which is now, I don't know, 15 to 20,000 new homes, you know, (laughs) (laughs) anyway, so that's gone. But, um, we were living here. And it was, you know, just a beautiful fall day and Bruce had gone to work. No big deal. Used to not talking to him. And again, this all feels like uh, very surreal because uh, it's, it's been a long time. Yeah. You know, it's been a long time now. And anyway, so he had gone to work one day. No big deal. And he called me at one point during the day. Just, how you doing? What's up? We're texting. You know, it's what you do back and forth and kind of a quiet day. No real calls up there. He had to go run an errand and he called me and he's like, I can't find the UPS store and they want me to pick up a FedEx package at the UPS store or vice versa. He goes, I don't know what it is. He goes, can you look at, I'm like, yeah, I'll look it up. And I always joke that he couldn't get himself out of a wet paper bag on the ground, but uh, in the air, no problem. Coordinates. Absolutely. <laughs> he has it nailed. But um, anyway, so I talked to him briefly about that and he's like, yeah, I had to grab some lunch and he's like, oh, I got a call. No big deal. I got a call. Well, you, yeah, okay. you've probably been used to that yeah. all these years. Didn't marriage, think a right? thing so of it. A thing, yeah. Didn't think a thing of it. And that was um, early afternoon. Mm. I can't I can't tell you how many times I've disconnected from my wife. I'm like, oh, hey, I got to run, got an emergency, got a fire, whatever. Click, you know, love you, bye, click. Yep. Yeah, that love you, bye is um, pretty important. Yeah. Because you just never know if those are the last words you'll hear or um, if you get to see them again. Yeah. So, so so what happened that day? 
so I just went about my day, no big deal, and um, getting ready for dinner and um, went upstairs to get the pajamas for the kids, you know, jammies. And I had run up the stairs, and I have the pajamas in hand, and I'm just getting ready to come back down. And my daughter, Addie, at the time was barely, just not quite five, four and a half. And she goes, Mom, there's somebody here. And I'm like, what? Well, it was a beautiful fall day in Arizona in October, middle of October. And we had one of those big security screen doors at the front of the house. And, you know, I laugh because we had it really to keep everybody inside so that the kids didn't go rogue and run and play in the street. It was actually the the child gate. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, (laughs) it really was. And they're like, you know, you shouldn't deadbolt this without having a key. And I'm like, I know it's why it hangs right here out of their reach. Anyway, but you can kind of see out them, but you can't completely see through them, if you can imagine. Anyway, and I was like, okay, well, I come around the corner and I'm looking, just kind of peering through the screen door and I get a little closer and closer and I see a flight suit. And I was like, well, that's weird. And that's what Bruce wore to work every day. Right. And I got closer yet and that one flight suit was flanked by seven smoky hats. Those are the class A DPS uniform with the, a lot of people know the smoky hat. Yeah. And I, I just said, well, this can't be good. It just, it can't be good. And I was kind of in disbelief because I never worried. Yeah. Not, I, I really didn't. It wasn't something you had worked no. through in your brain before. No, I yeah. mean, anyway, I opened the door and I said, well, come in. And I'm still holding the pajamas and... I said my daughter's about four and a half and my son's two and a half his name is justice and they came in and they said uh, bruce lost his life today rescuing two lost and dehydrated stranded hikers up in sedona arizona and it just it didn't make any sense like what do you mean and i said well how's the pilot the pilot's fine. Thinking it was down helicopter. Well, that's the only thing that could happen, right? Right. I mean, you think about all sorts of things in this crazy public safety world, but in my life, that is the only thing I thought could happen. I never thought of a vehicle accident. I never thought of a training exercise issue. I never thought of anything except for a crash. And then they proceeded to tell me that during the rescue, he was struck uh, with the helicopter rotor blade which was even more unfathomable to me. If anyone has seen a helicopter, you know how high that rotor blade is. And then you think about the tail rotor and I'm like, no, he taught and preached rotor blade awareness. I mean, that's what he did. Yeah. Yeah. That's rule one for helicopters. hundred percent. Yeah. Everybody. There's just no, there's no way that that could have happened. Right. And then they proceeded to explain it to me in that because of the incline of the mountain, and the fact that the helicopter couldn't turn off the spinning, the top rotor, the rotor blades there, that they were full throttle and balancing. And there was a very limited space of which they were working in. Because if you can imagine, you think 90 degree angle, but that's actually not the case. You think it's actually like, what, 40? Is that 45? <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, you're showing me. So I know I'm showing you, but they can't see me. So anyway, but you're at this 45 degree angle. And at some point, you know, that blade will ultimately touch the mountain. Right. But for whatever yeah. reason, 
Um, he went to get the, he deployed off the helicopter, all of his gear, helmet, everything you can ever imagine, and went out to get the gentleman first just because of his proximity. And he pushed the gentleman's head down and grabbed his arm and they just kind of hover and then load in. And I don't know if people can imagine that, but that's kind of how it works. So he goes back for the female and does the same exact thing because of her position, pushes her head down. They both duck down and then they start to walk toward the helicopter and she kind of walks into a cactus. And so he turns around and, and he stood up and he was struck in the head uh, by the helicopter rotor blade and fatally wounded. So they tell me this story. And again, I'm giving more detail now because I didn't even have that much detail at the time because it was completely incomprehensible. And I, yeah, I imagine even if they had known the full story, which they probably didn't at exactly. that point. No, right? they didn't. No. Even if they did though, would you even be in a position to understand or comprehend or even receive no. that information? No, it's just like I had been plopped in the middle of somebody else's life, just a hundred percent. And again, I'd never imagined I'd be there. I never imagined hearing the news. So they told me, and then I had to find the, the I mean, the kids are running all over the house now because they're like a house full of people. They don't even know, who, they don't know who they are. They don't care. They're just kids. They're like, oh, hey, hi, yeah. Mr. Policeman. You know, I mean, it's right. just a different thing. And, yeah. and I had to sit them down and I just sat crisscross applesauce and I put one on each knee and I said, daddy got a bad owie and he's not coming home. And they were like, mm, okay. And they just kind of went off and played. And if there's any beauty in shift work and being gone at 24, 48, 72, whatever it is, it removes that standard routine and it helps with the, it helped us at least with the adjustment Yeah. because it wasn't like every day dad comes home at five o'clock. This is, Oh, he's at work or he's gone today or he'll be back in a couple of days. And that was a gift during that time while we were trying to figure buys out. Buys you a little bit of time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And going back to rotor blade awareness and you know, what do you worry about or not worry about? And I remember sitting on the couch. I used to love the television show. ER. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Every medic hates that show. Right. Anybody who works in the field hates that show because they're like, it's not really how it happens. I'm like, yeah, right. Well, it's not how it happens. I'm like, what? it's like 90%. So I would force Bruce to sit on the couch with me. I'm like, come on. And he's like, I, this is just so not realistic. I'm like, okay, fine, fine. But we would sit there and he would watch it with me on the couch. And I remember one episode where the chief came running out in the helipad and again, rotor blade awareness. And he, he got too close to the tail rotor and it just lopped off his arm. And I just went, <gasps> and I look immediately at Bruce to my right. And he looked at me and he goes, never going to happen. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and I've, I've heard the presentations. I, uh, I know how cautious every single one of them are. And I never thought about it again. I never yeah. thought about it again. Yeah. So anyway, obviously changed the course of... Yeah. our lives forever, yeah. um, affecting the kiddos in different ways. But talking about, you know, the kids being aware or not being aware of what the, the significance of what had happened. It was a couple days later when my daughter said, well, when is dad going to come home? Yeah. Yeah. Now you got to deal with it. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. And, you know, they say, you know, what do you tell people when they lose someone? And a gift that was given to me, a piece of advice from another widow. She said, you know, the kids will ask you questions and you should only supply the answer for the question they asked. Mm. Do not give them any inform do not give them any more information than what they asked you for. Yeah. 
That's a short story. Why? Because when they're ready for more information, they'll ask a new question. Right. And I think as adults, we can learn a lot from that because we have a tendency to give up too, inf- too much information or overthink things. And, and resiliency in kids is so high because they take on what they can handle, even though they've been pushed into this place that no parent would ever want them to be. Yeah. That, uh, what did you do next? <laughs> what are the, what are the steps? What steps did you take? Oh, I had that, no idea what to a, do. Such a course. I mean, uh, to say this without, it just sounds stupid to even say it out loud, but that is such a definitive change in your life. It right? is. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's just, it's just that it, hard. It's stop. so obvious to say that, but what do you do with that? What did you do with that? <laughs> you know, I'm so grateful to all of the public safety folks that were involved and in my house, whether it was DPS or different agencies. Um, Scottsdale Fire was amazing also at the time. And because he had also worked for Scottsdale Fire because we worked everywhere. Um, but I really had to start trusting people and accepting help. And that was the hardest thing because mm-hmm. guess what? As cops and firefighters, you don't like help. You don't need help. You don't need anything, right? You got this. Well, actually you don't. And thankfully they had started these planning meetings that started immediately the next morning. So he was killed on Monday and Tuesday morning, nine o'clock, there's a meeting and we need to talk about certain things, Angela, this is what we're going to do. And so we start planning. And for whatever reason, I just became super laser focused on our insurance because I have this daredevil kid who's two, who's got like a frequent flyer card to children's because he's always getting hurt. And I was so worried about our insurance because he carried the insurance through the department because it was just better than my other yeah. option. So, um, I said, you know, what about our insurance? They well, said, so let me ask you real yeah. quick. Was that something that somebody had put on the table? Like, Hey, here's something to consider. Or was it just, Mm-mm. you just manifested that just manifested like, it. Cause I think that a lot of times people just like all of a sudden they go, I, what the heck am I supposed to do now? And oh, it just sure. completely wipes you out. Like yep. now what do I do? Yeah. So, and I'm a planner and yeah. you know, at the time I'm so fortunate that I was the one <laughs> It's anyway, I'm so off track today. I apologize, but I was the one who maintained all the bills. I'm the one who knew where every account number was. I knew that everything, how everything was set up. I knew where all the paperwork was, you name it. And like I said, for whatever reason, and it was the fall of 2008. So anybody who survived the economy during that time knows how tough it was. And we were completely overextended just like everybody. And that doesn't make it okay. We just were. And I was so concerned about our financial future. I was so concerned about, you know, being able to work enough to take care of these kids. And I was already working two jobs and he was working and, you know, the daycare and the tag team thing that you do on shift work, it was just chaos. And then, like you said, it just stops and you realize that none of those things really matter. And during that first day, there was a lot of relief because, um, the generosity of the organization, the 100 Club of Arizona, um, the representative at the time came in and handed me a check for $15,000. And it just took a huge load off my shoulders. And there was a lot of a lot more generosity during that time too. And at least I knew at that moment, I wasn't going to have to be immediately concerned about working for the next month. Because I was like, I have to go back to work. Like We have bills to pay. And what am I going to do now? You know, he was Mr. Mom. He was daycare. 
He was the one that was doing the ponytails and learning from the lady at daycare how to do the ponytail because they're like, you're failing. <laughs> anyway, a lot of hairspray. Um, but anyway, um, I, I had that little bit of sense of relief during that first meeting about the financial piece, but I knew long-term it was still going to be challenging. But again, I don't know why. I just said, what about our benefits? And they said, oh, don't worry. They're fine. They're fine. That was day one. Day two, same thing. I don't know why. I just kept asking the question. I'm like, what about our benefits? You know, like what, what about the insurance, the healthcare insurance? And they're like, it's fine. Okay. Again, Monday was the, Monday was when he was killed. Tuesday was the first meeting. We get to Friday. We're still having meetings. We're still planning every day. And the beauty of that is it just kind of kept me going. It just kind of kept me putting one foot in front of the other, making sure that we have, you know, you just got to keep going through the motions so you don't yeah. just fall apart. Yeah. And on Friday, they brought somebody new to the meeting. Everybody knows that's bad. Somebody new in the meeting, you're like, mm, what are you doing here? And I said, I asked again, what about our benefits? And the gentleman said to me, oh, I'm sorry. It's the end of the pay period. We hadn't even had the funeral. And that was it. Sorry, it's the end of the pay period. Mm. So... <laughs> Anyway, a couple of days in, they turned off our health care, and they're like, sure, here's an option. You can go to COBRA at $1,900 a month. And you remember, it was an, we were in a complete economic turmoil during right. that time, like yeah. everybody. And even though there was these generous gifts at the time, they don't last forever. And $1,900 right. a month for health care, that's really yeah, not that attainable. Ex- that exhausts your coffers in a heartbeat. Oh, in a heartbeat. So I became laser focused on making sure that that gets fixed. And I think they got tired of me because even during that first meeting, I like leaned over the table and I said, ah, we're going to fix this. <laughs> and they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> and they were like, oh my gosh, you know, there's nothing worse than a widow that's lost her mind. But um, anyway, but kept working on it and DPS was very good. And a lot of other public safety agencies here in the Valley were very supportive. And, and it took two years uh, of a lot of fighting in and out of uh, session legislation here, but ultimately they passed a law that um, I love, it's called Harold's Law, and it provides uh, lifetime access to health insurance for line of duty death families. It's access only. We still pay our own premiums, you know, we just like we're, they just treat us like an employee. So I think of, for example, DPS, you know, they have three, they have 2,998 employees. What's one more? I mean, does it really make that much of a difference? But again, we're paying our own premiums. So, right. Um, but you're getting the benefit of the, the agency volume rate. purchase. Yes, kind of, yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. Which yeah, is a huge, huge lifesaver, mm-hmm. um, and so many different levels. And again, I, I'm forever grateful for that. And I know how many families it's helped. Yeah. And when I tell them, they also have that sigh of relief and they'll say, you know, what's the legislation? I say it's Harold's law. And, you know, in their own moment of grief, I don't ever tell my story or try not to. I'm like, this is about them. And then they say, Harold. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And then I say, well, I also lost my husband in the line of duty. Yeah. And this is something we fixed so that yeah. someone like you and your family can benefit from it and not have to go through the struggles that we did. So, first of all, can I just say thank you for sharing your story and sharing, putting your heart on the table because it, it is very tender for me yeah. and the process that people go through, uh, we see it, it happens everywhere all the time, right? Mm-hmm. We, there's death and dying every day. Yeah. What bleeds um, leads all over the news. Right. And, um, 
but for us in public safety, there is a uh, the work that we are doing is for and on behalf of other people. Always. And and so when these tragedies come close to our home, um, when it takes one of our own folks out um, in the service of other people, to me it, that's different. I agree. And so uh, I really appreciate the you sharing that story and helping us understand how you know the the impact that this has on the individual the families and and the the impact it has on the spouses and the um there's a lot of things and and you've probably touched on uh, 1% of all the volume of things that we could talk about related to that I skip uh, most of it <laughs> I don't want these people to be on this call or listen to this podcast all day long. <laughs> right. We only have so much time. Right. Right. Um, but I, I, I also want to say thank you for um, being a champion for those who, who've come behind you. Because what you did was you stood up for yourself. Uh, and in doing that, you're standing up for for everybody who comes behind you who, who has to deal with this type of tragedy in their life. So I really appreciate you having the, the chutzpah yeah. uh, to do that. And so, um, which is to me, you've, you've gone, you, you did that and now you've gone next level. Yeah. <laughs> so you got involved with the hundred club mm-hmm. and then you eventually became the CEO. So tell me a little bit about, about that journey. What, what prompted you to go down that path? Well, I always say you just never know where life will take you. And just, you know, they, there's this cliche, I mean, just make a plan and somebody's going to laugh and take you in a different direction. But, you know, when Bruce passed away, I had to make some pretty hard decisions, obviously, and long-term trying to figure out what I want to do. And at the time I had switched, I was doing some background investigations for the State Department because I can do that remotely and and also working out of the GM Proving Ground and just trying to juggle it all. And I just knew that I wanted to give back. I just did. I People, when I meet them, are so, generally they're very sad. A, a level of sadness that you can't even really imagine. But when they see the tears often that I see don't come from their sadness, the tears come from how overwhelmed they end up being with the generosity and support of the community. That is what causes them to really break down because it comes as a surprise. Mm. You know, the tears happen in the immediate notification. There's no question. And yes, of course, there are many, many tears to follow. But the overwhelming part is the generosity. And I I recognize that. And I just felt like I wanted to say thank you to all these people and figure out how. So here I am. I'm calling the 100 Club. I'm like, okay, can I like be an ambassador? Can I help? They're like, whoa, slow your roll, Ange. <laughs> They're like, let's grieve for a little bit. And I'm like, I am. And I, I promise I am. And I'm not going to push mine, my story on somebody else, but I want to make sure that they don't feel alone in this journey. So I did just start helping out and volunteering whenever I could. And just, you have a new family now, a family you didn't have before because you just going through the motions, but the public safety family can be pretty incredible and they'll bear hug you. And then they're going to guide you. Like I said, those morning meetings, those every day, 9am for that entire week, it was that that got me through that time, and it was all of the friends and colleagues that kind of lift you up and continue to provide guidance. It kind of makes me laugh a little bit because we are, uh, all of us in public safety are very much problem solvers and doers, oh, mostly. Fixers. Right? Oh, all day long. Yeah. <laughs> which, which I think is an interesting dichotomy because sometimes in grief, you just need to sit there right. and be next to the person yeah. and just say, hey, we're going to sit. 
and we're going to just be here uh-huh. and uh, not try to wrap it up in process. And, oh, for sure. You know, so that's a, it's a tough challenge. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you real briefly about um, a story. Again, we don't, public safety, you don't like to accept help. Right? You don't, you don't want to say, oh, I need this or I need that. You don't want to accept help. And I'll never forget, I had to move uh, soon after that. It was about uh, four or five months later. And a couple guys, right, a couple firefighters, which I love. This is my favorite part. Um, they're like, okay, we got this. No problem. When do you want to go? And I'm like, um, I need to probably move on Thursday morning. They're like, okay, no problem. And I'm like, are you sure? Yeah, we got it. And I'm like, okay. And I'm a planner, right? And I've got to know what's going on. And they're like, we've got it. And I'm like, okay. So I wake up early on Thursday morning and I stand there again, completely overwhelmed with gratitude because there are 17 pickup trucks out in front of my house and trailers. And I'm just like, you guys. So I'm trying to help and they're like, stop helping. Stand there. Tell us what goes. Just stand there. I'm like, okay, okay. And they had my whole house moved in four hours, like to and from across town, and they didn't want anything for it. It's just how they needed to be involved. Yeah. And um, again, I it it tears me up to this day just because that is the one thing I love about the fire service more than anything is they'll get in there and they'll get it done, and they'll just figure it out. Yeah, I think that that a lot of the grief that we process is through yeah. action, right? And. And that's another thing I tell uh, widows. There's basically only two or three things, but this is the one big one. And anyone who's grieving, um, widower or widow, please let people help you. I know you don't need help. And I know you don't need anything because the one thing that you need, nobody can do for you. Yeah. Nobody can grant that wish. Nobody can make it happen. However, you got to know that sometimes they want to do things for you and it might not actually be for you. It's for them. They're never going to say that. But they want to be involved. And they involved. don't even know it Exactly. No, they don't know. they just like, okay, what can I do? Give me a job. No, sorry, I don't need anything. And um, so I tell them often to just make up things. What's your favorite <laughs> drink at Starbucks? Do you like Dutch Bros? You know, when was the last time you washed your exterior windows? Do you need a new flagpole? <laughs> you know, literally, you just need to make something up because yeah. they need to help. And, and I use um, as an example... I had a gentleman that says, hey, Ange, I need, um, I need you to tell me something to do. And this guy was driving, this guy was driving um, from Glendale to my house in East Mesa every day just to be with the family and to make sure we're doing okay and all that good stuff. And, and he's wonderful. And give me a job. Give me a job. And I said, well, I will, but I don't have anything. It was, all right, fine. I'm taking out the trash. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I go, What? He's like, well, I'm just going to take out the trash. I go, okay. And, um, and he came every week for the next six weeks to take out my trash, to drag it from the backyard to the curb, six, six weeks. That's a long time. Do you think that was for me? Or do you think that was for him? Yeah. So I share that because, again, I, that would be a big piece of advice I have for people is to just make sure that they ask for help, make it up. The other person might need it more than you. So yeah. anyway, sorry, tissues, okay. tell these stories. And anyway, start use the, start all the noise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I could say it's allergies. That's what most people do, but it's okay. 
anyway, so bringing it back around all these tangents, sorry, but, um, I wanted to give back too. I felt like I needed to get involved. I needed to do something that was bigger than myself. I wanted to help these other women or men that were going to come behind me because if there's anything that's inevitable, it's that there will be another. And so I started, like I said, as a volunteer ambassador, helped as much as I could, and then um, became increasingly focused on giving back to public safety in a different way. And I was hired to help develop the suicide awareness program for the 100 club, which is near and dear to my heart. Um, because suicide in public safety is a big deal. And it's one of those things nobody likes to talk about. It's very polarizing, but it happens. Uh, we've had two in the last two months here in Arizona and many people don't even know that. I think we've had four this year. Um, it's huge because as firefighters and police officers, you are the big tough guy or gal, right? And going back to that day that Bruce lost his life, another uh, firefighter medic officer that worked on the helicopter with him, his squad, so to speak, was asked to do the unthinkable. And he was asked to fly back up to the top of that mountain, get out, and put his friend, his colleague, in a body bag. And he did it. Tough as can be. No questions asked. That's your job. This is my friend. I'm going to do it. Fast forward. Um, that wonderful gentleman, his name uh, is Mark Cerna. And he actually, behind me, there's a photo of my kids and I um, at the Capitol, and they're honoring Bruce uh, for his sacrifice during the annual Police Week events. And then just to the to the left of us putting these um, flowers on this memorial is a picture of Mark. And Mark is an Honor Guard representative as well for DPS. So same thing as Bruce, fire medic, you know, uh, trooper, you name it. All these has all the titles, all the uniforms. In addition, one that Bruce didn't actually have, and that's the Honor Guard uniform. And if you look at that photo, he couldn't be any more put together. Yeah. The badge is shiny. The boots are shiny. He's wearing the smoky hat. It's, it, it looks perfect on the outside. Mark was great, though. He called me like every probably three weeks. Ange, how you doing? What do you need? And he lived way in the North Valley, and I was away in the East Valley. It didn't matter. And he's like, what's going on? And just want to check on you. And he was really consistent about it. And um, the first... We did a hike uh, for Bruce as an annual event. And the first year, everybody was out there. Everybody hiked the top of the mountain, 2.25 miles straight up in Sedona. Anyway, we do that every year. But on year two, Mark had called me. And the reception is really kind of bad because it's way out, kind of rural area. And Mark had called just as I pulled into the trailhead area. And he's like, hey, Ange, how you doing? And I go, Oh, I'm good. He's like, Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm so sorry that I can't be there today. I wanted to come and see the EMS Memorial in Florida. And I, I, so I'm still out here. So I'm just sorry. I can't be there for the hike. And how are you and the kids? And I'm like, Hey, you know what? We're doing it. We're doing okay. And thank you for calling. And he's like, what, what's new? What have you been up to? And I said, well, actually I started working for the 100 club and I've been working on developing this suicide awareness program for public safety. 
And there was a pause and he said, you what? And I said, I'm, I'm working on developing this suicide awareness program for law enforcement firefighters. Another pause and he goes, I think we have a bad connection. I go, Mark? And he goes, I gotta go. That was the last time I talked to Mark. Two years and one week to the day that he was asked to put Bruce in a body bag, he committed suicide. Even though on the outside everything looked great and wonderful and positive and put together, but he was obviously hurting inside and coming out of that terrible recession that we were in, you know, the financial matters. And I'm not saying by any means that the activity of putting Bruce in that body bag caused him to commit suicide. But I do believe in the cumulative effect of the stressors in our lives that, you know, we talk about that internal cup. You can only put so many things in there until it overflows and yeah. his, his overflow and he didn't have the skills or resources that I wish he would have had yeah. in order to continue to put one foot in front of the other every day. Yeah. So, so that, that added more emphasis to me being at the 100 club and working on this program. Yeah. But let's just talk about that for one second. Yeah, of course. The burden we, the burden that, that he took on, mm-hmm. Right, we all have very different capacity for absorbing those impacts. But the one truth is, is that there is a limit. And I think all of us think that that limit is way off, like we'll never reach it. Yeah. But the reality is that uh, you will. And, and it, it takes a toll on your body, on your mind. And you may not, you may not actually get to a point where you're willing to take your own life, but uh, the cost that you pay in relationships, the cost mm-hmm. that you pay in your health, mm-hmm. it is damaging and you have to do something to mentally floss. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, so I won't belabor it, but you know, at the encouragement of my, my wife, I started going to therapy as well. Not because I was feeling in particularly rough about a certain thing, but just recognizing the series of trauma in my life. For example, when I was 19 years old, one of my fellow Marines, who I was very close with, got in a really bad car crash and oh. died and perished oh. on the spot. And it's one of those memories that just, it, this is going to sound really crazy, but I can't remember his face. I just remember him. Mm. And that's a, that's a trauma that didn't really, I was not mindful of until I realized the cumulative effect of all these different things. So I think it's really important that you have, we work on awareness. Um, there's a great Paul Combs comic where it, you know, it shows the two firefighters sitting in the back seat and the one's got a sign around his neck that says, I'm considering suicide. Oh. And, and, it, and it's like, it's not that obvious, right? Yeah. Like we have to be willing to recognize that we're all absorbing impacts and we have to find ways to, to ameliorate the, the damages mm-hmm. of those impacts. We do. And it's so important and more important than people realize because it affects every part of your life Yeah, and, and sleep, sleep deprivation. Oh my gosh. I, you know, a, a dear woman who is now a friend of mine, her husband committed suicide and it was because he had gone six to seven days with basically no sleep mm. and sleep is so essential in that recovery piece. 
And, you know, and he's a firefighter. So I think about it and everybody's got an off duty job, right? Everybody's got side job. And if you're at the station and you happen to be super busy and you're running calls, you know, for two days straight and then you get a day off and now you're doing your extracurricular activity or whatever it is, you know, you've got your side job and you got to get that done. And then all of a sudden you got to go back to shift. And that added up. It added up to a point where he couldn't handle it anymore and he took his own life and it's devastating. And so I came to the 100 Club to do that, to do just that piece. And I worked in the environment here for just over a year. And I was also at the time being um, groomed, trained, et cetera, to take over for the previous executive director. But after I'd been here for about 15 months, I said, you're not ready to go. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, I guess not. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, call me when you are. And uh, fast forward uh, a few years later, um, I was called. Yeah. And it's, I, they said, would you come run this place? And I said, you know what? It would be the honor of my life. So there, so let's talk a little bit about the 100 Club because sure. there's some amazing programs here that uh, some of which I'm sure you adopted, some of which I'm sure you, you, you brought on yourself. Um, or not brought, it sounds weird. Yeah. Some of which that you, you in, initiated. Sure. Yeah. Um, some great programs, some scholarships, and there's a, a, a cool mental wellness app that Oof. you guys have. So well, talk me through. There's, I have some notes here, but uh, tell me no, some of the stuff okay. that you guys got going on. I've got most of them memorized. So uh, <laughs> we do. We have a lot of really great things. And so the 100 Club of Arizona is a nonprofit organization that exists to be the backup for our firefighters and our police officers when they're not great. And that's the whole purpose is we say we're the men and women who stand behind the men and women who wear the badge, right? I mean, it's a mouthful. mouthful. (laughs) Yeah, it's like really, (laughs) anyway, but we're their backup and in many different ways. So in the event of a line of duty death, uh, we will be there uh, as they were for me to provide immediate financial assistance. But that is just the immediate piece. And then we basically adopt them and we, try to make sure that they have everything they need for the rest of their grief journey and for many, many years to come. And we do that in a lot of different ways. You know, we send all our survivor kids to camp every summer. Um, The most important part of that is not only do the kids just get to go and be kids, but the moms get a week off. (laughs) And the moms love that probably more than the kids because they are, I mean, they are the epitome of a single parent. I mean, there's single parents, there's tag teams, there's, you know, custody and all that kind of stuff, but everybody gets, you know, every other weekend or every Wednesday or whatever it is, these moms primarily, um, they don't get any time off. So that's a big deal for them. But we do all of their emergency document preparation. We help with um, scholarships, tuition, et cetera, you know, through this journey because many of them have small children and it's going to be a lot, whether it's counseling or anyway, we're all in it together. So the line of duty death piece, um, which that's what we're the most known for, but it's actually the smallest piece of what we do as an organization. The majority of what we do is line of duty injury support. So we support officers and firefighters in the event that they're injured and they're out more than 30 days and we'll take care of them all the way up to $18,000 to make sure that we can provide some monthly assistance. Because the one thing that people don't realize is even if you get hurt on the job, yes, I mean, you're going to get your paycheck and there's workman co- workman's comp type access to, you know, the financial piece, but you lose all your premium pays. You also can't do your off-duty work. 
So we provide this monthly assistance in order to make sure that their quality of life outside of that physical recovery uh, continues as such. We also have a HEROES program, which is for any kind of life-altering situation that may happen to them or their family members. I use the example of an uh, unfortunate example, and this just, anyway, there's too many examples, unfortunately. <laughs> if you have a child or a spouse that's diagnosed with a chronic illness or a terminal illness, you know, we can help with that. If you lose a spouse or child, we will help provide assistance to get you through that time as well. But fortunately, we have some other really, really positive, proactive programs. So we have the reactive piece, but then there's the proactive piece. And that's where I feel like we're really making the most difference. And that is, you know, scholarships for the kids. Last year, we gave away $355,000 to the children of public safety members. You don't have to have been injured or hurt or killed, lose your life, nothing. Just your kids, if you've been serving your kids right here today, I mean, they're eligible to apply for scholarships as well as any other dependent that you may have, or legal guardian too, because people start to get, I could go on all day. I don't want to sound like an that. insurance company, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, but we also buy equipment to make public safety safer. The more we can do to make you safer, the less that we have to do later. And it sounds selfish, but it's really not. It's just to make sure that you have the resources that you need on a daily basis, whether it's new turnout gear, whether it's new SCBA, whether it's you name it. I mean, it could be anything. Um, we do bulletproof vests. We do communications. We do different things. Um, and but that's in the form of like grants that you yeah. would give to agencies. Or and whatever. it's really easy, really easy <laughs> to apply. This isn't like a federal grant where it's like 47 so, pages. So where uh, I'm sitting in the firehouse or I'm sitting in my patrol yep. car, where do I go to get uh, information? 100club.org. Everything it's pretty that, straightforward. Yeah, 100club.org. <laughs> and you can go there. Um, we have, though... A couple apps as well. One of our big focuses are uh, mental health and wellness. And we believe that when, for example, when a community member calls 911, you expect an officer or firefighter to show up to help you on your worst day. And when they show up, you expect they're bringing their A game. Probably not their B game and definitely not their C game. They can't be like, oh, my back hurts. I can't get out of the truck or I didn't sleep enough or whatever. I mean, you can't, you can't do that. You have to have your A game. And in order to have your A game, you also have to be resilient. You have to have that mental fortitude. And that's not something you can test for, but it is something that we can provide resources to to help you get through every day. And those apps that we have out there right now, we have Fireproof obviously, for the, fr the fire side, and then bulletproof for the law enforcement side. But it is chock full of resources to deal with anything from stress, anxiety, um, anything, anything you can imagine. It's got a therapist finder in there, and they're, the therapists that are even loaded in there, they're culturally aware of your day-to-day -day interactions. We need to make sure that those people are vetted and that they are um, skilled and trusted in this world that, that public safety works in because you can't just have some random counselor in there because they might end up with an inherent you know, trauma from the stories that you tell. <laughs> I, I mean, you guys see the worst of the worst. Yeah. And we just wanna make sure that inside that app that we have valuable 
valuable resources. And it's an app because going to a website does you no good anymore. When was the last time it says, oh, remember this website? Uh, no. And then you're not going to go back to the firehouse or the station and sit down on the work computer and pull up, um, I have a gambling issue and <laughs> where do I get help for um, a pornography addiction? Yeah, I don't think so. No, because no, no. you can't even type the I, word in without it being I don't think you understand how it works. You sit down at the kitchen table Oh yeah. and those <laughs> folks will help you solve your problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have all the answers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So with that said, on the privacy of your own device, in your bunk, at home, and these resources are also available to the families. We even have a kid's corner, um, which is outside some of those resource, other resources, because you don't want the kids to be traumatized either. But it's just how to, you know, work through the experiences of being a police family or a fire family. So all wrapped up in there. There's so much good stuff. And that's where people can also go to learn about all of our programs and apply for assistance and, and figure out how to get involved. So well, what about on the other side of this, if we want to uh, provide support to the hundred club, how does uh, that, how does that happen? It's the license plate. So if you haven't seen the license plate, you should. There's an example of it right behind you there. I'll, but I'll, it's post, a a pitch, I'll post a picture. Awesome. It's a distressed black and white flag. And it's got a thin red line through the middle and a thin blue line representing both sides of public safety. And most people tell me you can see the red line more prominently, which is a little alarming, but it also depends on which side that you're. See, look, <laughs> it's something your eyes do. But anyway. <laughs> well, now that you but said it, I can't not. I know, <laughs> exactly. But at the very bottom, it says supporting public safety. And that's what it's about. And it's a very simple thing to do because at least in Arizona, you can get a vanity plate for $25 and 17 of that $25 goes back to supporting whichever respective charity is tied to that plate. And I also think it's an incredible way to say thank you to those that are out there working every day. When they see those plates, they know those people are supporters. And I would hope that it takes their blood pressure down just a little bit to know that there are so many plates out there and hopefully we're gonna have even more because it's a statement. Uh, That's a great way. Obviously participating in all of our different events that we have, whether you're climbing stairs for our 9-11 Tower Challenge or whether you are helping to support our scholarship program, making donations. Facebook fundraisers are my favorite thing because they, um, Facebook doesn't take a percentage or anything like that. They just, if someone wants to just set it up. They just facilitate it. For their birthday or in honor of someone, it's so simple. And then they'll provide those funds back to us. Amazon Smile, another really simple, easy one. If you shop on Amazon, which, thank you, pandemic, we all do, okay? <laughs> I don't know if anybody goes to a store anymore. I'd feel Why bad for Why the big box you? people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so if you go to Amazon, and just make sure you sign up for Amazon Smile. And that way, a small percentage will go back to whichever charity you choose, fries, grocery rewards, you name it, all of, there's so many ways to kind of latently be involved without having to write a check or, but then there's the volunteering. We always need volunteers. We always need people to support these different events and to just, again, like I said, keep saying thank you to those that serve us every day. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, Angela, thank you. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing with the hundred club. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for being a badass. No, (laughs) I'm in like company. So (laughs) thank you. It's my pleasure. So as we wrap up, um, hundred club, 
org. I will link in the show notes um, that address, even though I'm pretty sure you can figure it out at this point. Um, any parting thoughts? Just pay it forward, people. Pay it forward. I love it. Pay it forward. Thanks, Angela. You're welcome. Hey, that's all we have for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you, Angela, for sharing your story and for the work that you're doing at the 100 Club. The men and women who are wearing this uniform, who are behind the badge, we appreciate the support that you are providing for uh, for all of us. And uh, if you are interested in supporting the 100 Club, they are putting on a couple of different events, uh, one of which is a motorcycle run. They have several that happen uh, beginning September 18th. So get on over to uh, 100club.org uh, forward slash A-Z-F-H-M-R. That is for the uh, Arizona First Responder Memorial Motorcycle Run. Get in over there, register to ride. There's also a raffle you can participate in. And um, yeah, get on over to 100club.org, troll their site. Now, if you're enjoying the Fireground Fitness Podcast, go to whatever platform you enjoy most. Subscribe. This podcast will drop in the middle of the night. Shoot me an email. Shoot me a message on Instagram. Whatever kind of feedback you might have, please let me know. I want to make this podcast as enjoyable and as uh, rewarding and enriching for you as possible. So that's all I got now. Let's look at the example that's being set for us by those in the world, those who've listened to on this podcast and go on out there and get some.